the Nonprofit Hour. A weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Molly Jean Bennett. On today's show, we'll take a listen to eight short documentaries on local nonprofits and social issues. These pieces were created by students in a course called Radio U, which is offered every spring and fall by the Media Institute for Social Change in partnership with xray.fm radio station. The course presents the journalism and technical skills necessary to produce audio documentaries. Students attend weekly seminars where they learn and practice digital recording and editing. The pieces you're about to hear were conceived, produced, and edited by our spring 2017 Radio U students. First, we'll hear Darcy Sharp's documentary on PAIR, an organization that builds positive relationships with homeless and transitional youth through education, art, and recreation. Hello. Interest in coffee? Yeah, please, huh? My name is Pippa Arend. I'm the development director of PAIR. PAIR is an acronym. It stands for Project Education Arts Recreation. So we're working with kids through the head, heart, and body, which is in some ways not innovative, just really rare to work with homeless kids as though they have a head, a heart, and a body and need opportunities for growth in all three arenas. Uh, we're actually out of cream. Can I get you some whole milk? One of the gems of our program is our barista school. It's an actual retail window at our space on Northwest 6th and Flanders, and it's run by students 8 o'clock to 1 o'clock, Monday through Friday. These are young people that have gone through our barista training program, which is a two-and-a-half-month training in partnership with Nosa Familia. My name is Ruth, and I'm 21 years old. I've worked in the past. Um, what got me back on the streets was not being able to use my backpack anymore and not being as self-sufficient. The youth that PAIR works with are homeless and transitional young people. So what that means is they're 15 to 24 years old. They are living in the brid- under the bridges, in the woods, or in the shelters, or um, they're what we call transitional So these are kids that really have come out of poverty, have come out of foster care, have come out of um, abusive situations. These are not kids that have parents that are looking for them. These really are the kids who have no one. You know, when we talk about homelessness, really what's happening for these kids is it's there's a relationshiplessness that is in their lives. So they don't have the relationships with people that would allow them to have safety. So the first thing that happens is kids experience safe space. So that means eye contact, people that know their names, a place where they can put down their backpack and it won't get stolen, food, safety, a a sense of nurturing, a sense of love, really, that, that simple. And then from there, we bring kids into our mentoring programs. To watch the students and the youth present like a really awesome latte. They got really awesome latte art that day and they've been getting it all week and they're super proud of it and the customer's really happy about it. You know, that's genuine. Um, And so to watch them kind of 
gain that confidence and have that connection with the community too, just over that cup of coffee, I think it's really, really meaningful. Okay, thank you. It's a really in-depth training, and after the kids graduate from that, then they can apply to actually have a job at our barista school. We've certainly had kids who have unstable housing while they're going through the barista school. It, you know, it just presents increased challenges, um, and different kids respond to those different challenges with different levels of capacity and responsibility. Thank you, ladies. When I came here, I was not in a good headspace, and I would just sit and paint and hide from everybody. This I've been doing for maybe four months now. Someone told me that I might be good at it, and it was really good for my self-esteem to hear that. And I've always wanted to uh, work in coffee anyway. It's actually really fun. I was nervous about it at first, but uh, in this part of town, I really enjoy just being able to give people a cup of coffee who really need it. Watching them grow, watching them make that shift from using a street name to their real name, where they start to unveil the layers of protection, where they start to trust me or trust the world again in such a way that they can start to reveal their inner beauty. That's the gap that that pair is meeting, is, is that relationship that then they can develop the networks that allow them to move forward. What's your dream job? Oh, <laughs> like, you know, that's not something I, I feel like is in my control at this point, um, but something to do with giving back our nature, that would be cool. I really do love this job. As an exciting side note, Pear Barista School is partnering with the Media Institute for Social Change to offer a coffee and tea counter at Citizen, the Media Institute's storefront community space on bustling North Mississippi Avenue. Come say hello, have a coffee, and check out the space. Our next Radio U documentary is by Tom Humphrey, who made this piece on BARC, an environmental watchdog group that works to protect Mount Hood National Forest. The border of Mount Hood National Forest is only 20 miles east of Portland. Millions of people visit its trails, camps, rivers, and lakes each year. It's the job of the Forest Service to manage these lands. BARC, an environmental watchdog group, works to protect them. David Lebo, a botanist for Mount Hood National Forest, says the relationship is complicated. BARC has been a thorn in the side of the Mount Hood National Forest for a long time. Bark is usually fighting a Forest Service timber sale, and one key way they go about this is to send volunteers to those forests. They call this ground truthing. My name's Michael Crockta, and I'm the Forest Watch Coordinator for Bark. Yeah, so ground truthing is basically going out to the forest with the Forest Service timber sale maps in hand and walking the units that the Forest Service is proposing to log and comparing what is there on the ground to what how the Forest Service has described that area. And so if we go out and find site-specific information, we can then bring that to the table and the Forest Service needs to consider it. And if it's wildly different than how the Forest Service has described an area, then that's grounds for a legal challenge, basically. 
And Bark has sued the Forest Service over timber sales in the past, several times. But they've also collaborated, usually on restoration projects, like planting trees on decommissioned roads. But it's a project that started last summer, where they found a common cause. Here's David Lebo again. Well, a pollinator visits the flower of a plant. It's an insect or a hummingbird or a bee or a bat. And if they're, they're visiting the, the plant to get nectar, which is sugar from the plant. And in the process of doing that, they're inadvertently picking up the pollen from the flower. And then when they fly away and go visit some other plant, in, in another individual of that same plant species, they're cross-pollinating. They're, they're pollinating that plant with the pollen from the plant they just came from. So that's how you get cross-pollination. That's how you get genetic diversity within a plant population. And these plants and pollinators are extremely important to each other. Here's Grady Proctor, a field botanist who has worked with bark. A lot of plants developed this co-evolutionary dance with um, insects, primarily. And the two, like, co-evolved together, and these plants made these elaborate flower structures. They created, in some extent, uh, pollen, additional sweet treat to entice insects. Some insects get a nice fragrance or whatever from the flowers to attract a mate. Um, but the, the, the plants and the insects co-evolved in such a way um, so that the insects had something to eat and the plants had a way to move, something that plants um, generally don't have the ability to do. Um, so this was just a way to get pollen from point A to point B by uh, enticing these little insects to come pay them a visit. The U.S. Department of Agriculture was starting to fund pollinator restoration projects. But Mount Hood National Forest didn't have enough plants for the restoration work they were already doing. So Bark volunteered to help collect seeds from the native plants local pollinators have evolved to count on. Yeah, Bark had an event um, in the forest last uh, summer for a month doing a lot of like field checking timber sales and things like that. Um, but we also did seed collecting. This is a project that the Forest Service is doing that Bark's collaborating um, on. And um, they're going out and looking for certain uh, plants, largely to, for certain pollinators, pollinators that are um, struggling right now. Here's Bark's Michael Crocta. It ended up going a lot more smoothly than I think we thought. And, um, and yeah, it seems like the Forest Service appreciated it. And so now, you know, we got broadleaf lupin, Douglas spirea, uh, pearly everlasting, yarrow, and uh, Canada goldenrod. I'm David Lebo, and I work for the Mount Hood National Forest as a botanist. You know, there, there, there are all kinds of different people who work for the Forest Service, and some people are open to this, and some people are resistant to it. I happen to be one of those kind of people who are open to it. I look at it as bark, you know, as a uh, people who are interested in doing restoration work on the Mount Hood National Forest, and they, they're willing to spend their time collecting seed for restoration projects, and, you know, I think it's great. Bark's Michael Crocta again. I mean, our, the, our relationship with the Forest Service seems like it can just, like, change on a dime because we, in our work, really support projects like this happening and really like to get involved and show that we support them by actively, you know, pitching in and putting in work on the ground. But then at the same time, when the Forest Service proposes really bad projects, we, 
we put in an equal amount of energy and work on the ground to push back on what we see as ecologically destructive. And so I think that there's some people in the Forest Service that really appreciate some of the support that we have given for like real restoration. And there's others that see us more of as like an adversary overall. Because I mean, honestly, we haven't really been collaborating on projects like this for all that long. Most of our history of our relationship with the Forest Service has been more confrontational. This coming summer, Bark will be collaborating with David Lebo and the Forest Service on the seed collection project again.
You just heard Come On Home by the Lejadu Sisters. This is the Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm. Next up, we have Devin Snyder with a documentary on Gladys Bikes. That's me, commuting to work. It's the first nice day in months, and my body isn't used to this kind of heat in the morning. Biking does have its downsides, sweat being just one of them. But despite the bad hair and the grease stains, I continue to bike because, well, I'll let someone else explain. I bike because it's a heck of a lot more fun than driving a car. And beyond that, whether I'm doing it to commute or just for recreation, it reminds me how much my body is capable of, which is always a good thing. That's Leah Benson, founder and owner of Gladys Bikes. In addition to making sure your ride is tuned and your gear is styling, the team at the Northeast Alberta shop is determined to take on one of the more vexing aspects of biking, the bike seat, also known as the saddle. Let's be real, what we're trying to do is take a small, awkwardly shaped, usually kind of hard object, and shove it in the most sensitive parts of our body and try to pretend that it's comfortable. So what we do is we offer people the opportunity to try a whole bunch of different shapes and sizes and styles so that they can find one that works really well for their particular body. Based on the notion that if you're not comfortable with while riding your bike, you're just probably not going to do it. Riders coming into Gladys are able to try different saddles through the Shop Saddle Library program. After paying a small fee, members can check out seats for up to one week each. The stock is pretty extensive, specializing in seats designed to fit women's bodies. This is what draws a lot of customers to Gladys. Its staff and inventory are women-focused. I once went into a shop in Portland looking for a new saddle and was confronted by a male employee who was unsure which of their supposedly gender-neutral seats was right for my, ahem, female geometry. When trying to find a saddle at Gladys, staff aren't afraid to get a little more specific. Here's Leah again. All of us that work here are happy to provide advice and talk to you in as much detail as you want to about what's going on with your body. Sometimes folks really want to share a lot. I I typically invite people first off by saying, um, you're welcome to be as graphic as you want to be, and then ask questions about um, where they're feeling pain and break it down to bone pain versus my favorite euphemism, soft tissue pain. I was lucky enough to witness this beloved phrase in action when lifelong cyclist Melanie stopped by the shop. Hey, Devin. So you're returning a saddle today? I am returning a saddle. Yep. I just rode uh, 45 miles on it, and about 30 of those was painful. Oh, what, what was painful about it, if you don't mind getting into, no. get into whatever details well, you feel like? Um, I think it's too wide because it, it hit me, kept irritating right, right here, here. Yeah. where your thigh meets your mm-hmm. butt cheek. Kind of like the bone right up there? No, not the bone, just the soft tissue. Ever heard the phrase, having fun is never hard when you have a library card? Let's just say Melanie's having a lot of fun. So how many saddles have you tried from the library? Uh, six, seven, or eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So set eight, but that one twice. Well, I started last year before Cycle Oregon and never found one that I could tolerate. So I rode, you know, I actually took two set, two saddles to Cycle Oregon. Oh, really? Rode one for two days and then, yeah. Have a good ride. And then I started up again recently because I just know there is a saddle out there that I can tolerate. There has this to be. This is not it, though. No, this that's not, not it. it. Yeah, yeah, it's the devil's spawn. Let's get that off there. Yeah, yeah. I, I would like it. Okay. <laughs> the search for the right saddle can lead to some fairly intimate conversations. I was curious how male riders might respond to some of the personal questions asked by Gladys staff. 
you might think that men are, are more hesitant to talk to women about their genitals, but oh, oh, that is not the case. When people come in here, it's pretty, um, it's pretty easy to get them going and talking about exactly the ways that it's pinching their balls or really not supporting them. The majority of bike shops in the country are not only owned by men, but tend to favor products that are designed for male riders. When Gladys Bikes opened its doors in 2013, its mission was to support the often forgotten women, trans, and femme cyclists. Its motto of women focused, not women exclusive, is a guiding but adaptable principle for Leah. I think our focus in terms of gender is in constant evolution, much like gender is, and that we want to be sure that we're responding to how people are identifying so that all people that come through are comfortable. We'll continue to be women-focused, but I think that that term means different things to different people increasingly. Um, And so the best thing that we can do is continue to listen to our customers and figure out how we are and aren't serving them, because, yeah, the notions of gender are just going to continue to evolve, and if we, I don't know, hold on to more antiquated notions we're not serving people anymore i think of bike shop culture like an ecosystem and that we all need to work together to best support people on bikes and the thing that we do best is making sure people are really comfortable other shops refer people to us constantly for saddles and to help them figure out what's going to be comfortable because they know they'll be taken care of here if you want to become a member of the saddle library or just say hi to leah and the crew stop by gladys bikes they'll welcome you spandex clad or not because as it says on their website you fit in here we promise next we'll hear mike selig's report on the southwest washington coalition action network which was formed after the 2016 presidential election if i decide to run you'll have the great pleasure of voting for the man that will easily go down as the greatest president in the history of the United States. Me, Donald John Trump. Yes, that guy became our president, and he's right. He will go down in history, but not as the greatest president. The man-child who bragged about sexually assaulting women and the only presidential candidate to be endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan turned out to be a terrible president. But he also turned out to be the best motivating force in modern history because he got the working class out in force to take action and to fight back against the 1% who seemed to be running our country. And that's a very good thing. One of the people that took action after the election is Dr. Beth Lee. She worked in the women's health field for years. Between gigs helping out in her community and working at the local food bank, she and a group of like-minded individuals started the Southwest Washington Coalition Action Network. Well, you remember the Women's March that happened right after the inauguration. Millions of people, more than, showed up for the inauguration. Well, that march started a grassroots movement where all those people went home and started local groups. The coalition wanted to talk to their congressional representative and invite their friends. And they thought the best way to do that was to hold a town hall. We can't get Trump out right away, but we can focus on our local representative, Herrera Butler, who we feel isn't representing the interests of Clark County. 
And so we all kind of thought, what can we do to get her out? And we started talking together. And so it was in January we decided that we would have a town hall, invite her to come, do it over the Easter recess when she'd be home, pay for the hall ourselves, talk to her staff, coordinate it so she felt safe. And so we did all that, sent her letters, went in, talked to her staff in person, made phone calls. Um, but unfortunately, she didn't feel comfortable coming. So they decided to go ahead without Herrera Butler. They rented the 250-seat Foster Hall at Clark College in Vancouver, Washington. We rented the hall, it seats 250 people. We thought, uh, worst case scenario, maybe 10 or 20 people would show up. And we thought if that was the case, then that would be good information for us. That would tell us that we had read the county wrong and that people here didn't feel any desire to speak out and we needed to change our direction. So that's cool, but what happened instead was it completely sold out, we turned people away, people got up to speak two or three times um, and asked us when the next one would be. So there was clearly a desire for people uh, to get their message out to their representative. Hi Jamie, I'm sorry you're not here. For two hours, people patiently waited their turn to talk about immigration, the environment, and health care. They spoke about things that kept them up at night and made them wonder if they were going to be able to live the long and happy life they had hoped to. After the town hall, I asked what was next for the Coalition Action Network. Well, we're doing a voter registration drive to try to get more people involved. And uh, then we're going to continue working on getting the word out to people in the area about how Jamie Herrera-Butler doesn't represent us. Whatever people's interests are, I think they have something to say. And you can say, well, I don't have time to go lobby, but I'm telling you what the Congress people hate, 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 is bad press. And so letters to the editor really make a difference. And even little small actions... You go down to Jamie Herrera's butler's office and make a giant thermometer because you're worried about getting meningitis because she's cutting all the Affordable Care Act. Whatever you do, they hate that kind of publicity, and that's really little tiny actions can make a huge difference. You can find the Southwest Washington Coalition Action Network on Facebook. And be sure to join them at their next town hall meeting in August. Who knows? Representative Butler might even show up. Next up, we have a piece from Megan Hattie Stahl on passport immigration photos, a shop in northwest Portland. Every now and then I'll get into a Lyft, uh, an Uber, or a taxi. Like three drivers I've had now have uh, uh, reflected fondly upon their experience here and told me that their journey in America began here in this place. All right, uh, it'll just take about four minutes. Uh, I'm Damien DeBizer, and I take passport photos and fingerprint people all day. Damien is the manager at Passport Immigration Photos, a shop on the corner of Broadway and Glisson in northwest Portland. The shop was opened in the late 70s by Bulgarian immigrant Andrei Protasi. Then I decided to come to visit a friend here, and I brought 15 Mercedes, one Rolls Royce, one 
Volkswagen and one Porsche. After selling a few of the cars, Andre ran into trouble with the EPA. He hadn't converted the vehicles to meet American auto standards. With all of his wealth on the street in the form of his cars, he was stuck in Portland. I got there, got my immigration photos, went to immigration, waited for probably three or four hours, and the lady who talked to me said, these pictures are not right. I was very upset, walking the street, cussing. I saw a little space for rent. Somebody's supposed to be close to immigration here and do the right job. Why not me? Soon after, Andre moved the shop to its current location two blocks north. He even opened a second business, a Balkan restaurant, in the empty space just next door. I had a bell between the doors. If somebody comes to a restaurant, I had to run over there, give him a food, drinks, etc. Run back to the photo. A little bit later, we had a special permit to do fingerprints. Sharon, you're next. You put some conditioner on your hands. It's going to help your prints come out more clearly. So just uh, go ahead and rub that into each and every one of your fingertips. You're sort of driving with someone else's hands. You're painting a picture with a different brush every single time. I've gotten to the point now where I just grab a person's hand and I know just by touching them if, uh, how hard I need to press, which ink inkwell I need to use. Okay, 35 by 45. Yes. All right, come on right over. I've memorized the standards and specifications of uh, hundreds of countries. Canada, for example, they're very strict about their specifications, but they will allow glasses. America doesn't allow glasses as of November 1st. Hi, what's your name? Olivia. Why are you in here today? Oh, so I can become a legal Canadian citizen. My mom is from Southern California and my dad's from Canada. So she's already a Canadian citizen because her father's Canadian. So by blood right, she's a Canadian. But the Canadian government doesn't know that until we tell them. One of the earliest memorable experiences was a lady that had been rejected uh, when she went to Mazatlan because her passport was within six months of being expired. She flew back here, got off the the uh, the max from the airport came straight over here with her luggage wheeled it over got her photo taken and then drove straight up to seattle to get her passport renewed so that she could go back to mazatlan the next day customer was above everything because I don't give him money, he gives me. I had to make a living, and they made it possible that I make my living. So I gave him excellent service. Although Andre sold the business three years ago to current owner Greg Slauson, his tradition of excellence lives on. The shop hasn't gotten a rejection from the United States in over a year. Um, often I'll have a, a parent that'll come in and uh, they're expecting a, a really tough time getting a picture taken of their child. I'll get the right shot right off the, you know, one of the first three photos with the kid and it's, uh, it's great. It's like that little magic moment that you get and it's really satisfying. Okay, uh, that's $15 per card you guys paying together? Yes. Okay, uh, 30 bucks.
Was Meticulous Bird by Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. Now let's hear a piece from Amy Craig on the Dougie Center, which provides support to grieving children and teens. So out in the world, you start crying, everybody rushes to get a tissue or shove a tissue in your face, and the message usually is, stop crying, I'm uncomfortable, even if that's not the explicit message. So here, we ask people, if someone starts crying, to just subtly pass the tissue box in their general direction, but don't hand it to them. And don't make a big fuss on the other side of the room, like somebody get a tissue, oh, can you get the tissue, where's the tissue? And then no one's listening to the crying person. That's Jana DeCristofero. She's a licensed clinical social worker and the coordinator of children's grief services at the Dougie Center. We are a, um, a peer support group for children, teens, young adults, and their family members who've experienced a death. Um, so it's a death of a parent, a sibling, a primary caregiver, or in the case of a teen, a close friend. And we also have our Pathways program, which is for families where someone in the family is facing an advanced serious illness and is going to die. Whatever you have in your mind about what happens at the Dougie Center is probably wrong, or at least only partially true. Aside from having lots of tissues around, what happens at the Dougie Center for kids mostly looks like play. They tend to really like to go into the art room, the volcano room, the um, big energy room that we have with a foosball table and an air hockey table, punching bag, trampoline. Um, but recently, the kids in my 6 to 12-year-old group have been spending a lot of time in the hospital room, the recreated hospital room, and also the dress-up room. Um, the first area, the largest area, is set up for basically make whatever you want with whatever you can find. We try to keep a variety of materials available for the kids, so anything from glitter glue to clay to bracelet making, card making, collage making. And our our general premise is we don't want to direct what the kids are making. So we offer the materials and let them go where they're going to go with that. There are over 200 volunteers who help in the peer support groups. Most of them spend their time playing with the children in the playrooms downstairs, while a few of us facilitate the adult caregivers in conversation upstairs. I I remember moments of very intense sadness that would just kind of come up at a moment's notice. Travis volunteers in the same group I do. He plays with the kids with four or five other volunteers, and my co-facilitator and I sit with their adults. Travis also came here briefly as a child, after his mother died when he was 15. I didn't feel like I was sad at the right times. It always felt like I was in the middle of math class in freshman year of high school, or I was in the middle of science class, 
or doing something completely unrelated and all of a sudden you would get this, I remember these very intense, overwhelming feelings where you would break down, you would cry, you would just shut down and not be able to do whatever it was you were doing. Um, but also feeling kind of shocked that at the moments where I felt I should be sad or I should be feeling pain or I should be feeling something, those things weren't showing up. I think the element of choice at the Dougie Center is totally vital. And there was a kid who came to Dougie Center and he passed every time in opening circle. Pass, 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 pass. And then one time we were playing a game during the open time and we were playing Hungry Hippos, which is really loud, right? And so he's like yelling over the Hungry Hippo and he said, I don't ever want to talk about my mom. Never, 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 never. I'll say, you never, ever, ever want to talk about your mom. It's like, nope. I'm like, well, you don't have to. You can pass. So we went on about that for a, few, for a while, or playing the Hungry Hippo game. And then the next time he came to group, it was his turn to talk. He took the talking stick and told his whole story. At the Dougie Center, they aren't trying to fix anything for grieving people. Because you can't. You know, we had a kid tonight have their last session and you know you talk about the fact that it doesn't end and you kind of think that it gets weaker and weaker but it definitely still carries quite a punch even you know 20 years ago is what I'm thinking about is still never when I expect it to happen never when I want it to happen but always some at some point it just yeah it just kind of rises up so coming to someone who's had a death and being very matter-of-fact and solid in your reception of their story without a lot of oh my gosh, you poor thing, that's so sad. Like all the things we would think of being really kind and warm and friendly can really be off-putting to people who are grieving. So to be able to sit with somebody who can withstand the emotional intensity of what is being shared without being shaken visibly, you would be shaken on the inside. We have time for that later. But to be able to just sit with that person and be like, I am not afraid of your story, no matter how scared you might be and no matter how scary the world might think your story is. That to me is the foundation. What happens at the Dougie Center is unexpected and profound, partially because it's a space to grieve that looks like a space to play, but also because it's simply a space where people can come as they are, play or not, talk or not, and always be listened to. I think this is a lesson we could all use right now. You don't have to know the answers to make a difference. People often know what they need. Just show up and listen. It's a fact of the human condition that tears and laughter often go hand in hand. So next we'll hear from Radio U student Carly Meisberger, who made this piece on Curious Comedy. Portland's comedy scene is robust. There are free and cheap shows happening all over the city every night of the week. Mondays, there's free stand-up at Eastburn. Tuesdays, you can catch an open mic at Helium Comedy Club. Wednesdays, the liquor store hosts a weekly comedy group. You get the idea. And then there is Curious Comedy Theater. Curious is different because although they host occasional free shows, their ticket prices generally range from $12 to $15. But what makes them even more interesting is that Curious Comedy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. They are a nonprofit comedy club with the mission to improve the lives of kids, adults, and seniors through the art of comedy. Take a bite. You know peanut butter is delicious. It is the tastiest of all the legumes. <laughs> I met with founder Stacy and managing associate Leslie of Curious Comedy to learn about what it means to be a nonprofit comedy theater. We gathered in the green room, 
where posters from different comedy shows cover the walls and strange props lean haphazardly against old, comfy couches. Uh, that's from a sketch show. That's a bloody dress from a sketch show. Uh, this particular sketch was about a little like pageant girls who witnessed a crime and could only describe the crime in like pageant show oh, no. language. <laughs> I asked Stacy why she chose to make her comedy theater a nonprofit. So for me, it was about improving people's lives through the art of comedy. So it's a more artistic, educational, um, mission-based prospect. So it's not about making a business that I can eventually sell. It's more about an artistic pursuit. And when you say improving people's lives through comedy, what does that mean to you? Well, we have uh, a bunch of different programs. Our live shows, I think, improve people's lives. It improves the lives of audiences by making them laugh, first and foremost. <laughs> I think laugh, laughter is the best medicine <laughs> for all of us. Yeah. Uh, I think people appreciate that more now than ever. Um, I said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> when we first opened, you know... Uh, Sam Adams had just been elected. Obama was about to be elected. So we had our first openly gay mayor. We had our first black president. Like, times were pretty good. And uh, I remember thinking to myself at that time, like, what are they going to talk about on The Daily Show? What are they going <laughs> to talk about on The Colbert Report? Like, they had made their careers on commentary the on the Bush administration. Um so it, it was harder for people to understand how important comedy can be in both discussing things that are hard to talk about uh, through satire. It makes us, it, it gives us an opportunity to discuss things that are hard to talk about with humor, um, but also just the, the ability to laugh when, and release tension. Curious Comedy has worked with local organizations, including the Hillsborough Police Department, to improve the lives of community members through their programming. And then we have run programs on and off throughout the length of our life as a theater, where we've worked with seniors living with Alzheimer's, and we've used improv to improve their quality of life. We've trained kinder and more compassionate police officers. We've used improv to help promote literacy and kids at underperforming schools uh, and we run the all jane comedy festival which promotes uh, women in comedy because there's a huge discrepancy um, in, in comedy there's a disparity between the number of women and the number of men in comedy it's like the 60s so we're trying to help promote women and reduce that disparity that's just the beginning. <laughs> I mean, like, I, if I had all the money in the world, we'd be using improv to help kids with autism. A lot of people are doing programs where it's been shown to help kids with autism. It's also been shown to help um, rehabilitate prisoners. Like, there's so much improv can do. It's pretty magical. Yeah. Been talking to a doll this whole time. You're one of my best friends. <laughs> I'm starting to think this conversation's on a loop. You said that three times already. Let's go to the mall. Charlie <laughs> Meisberger reporting from Curious Comedy for X-Ray FM. In our last Radio U piece for today, Lita Husik takes on secession, both the modern conversation and the historical context. October the 4th, 2017. Dear Mother, 
It has been almost a year since the great disaster of January 20th. Our nation is in the throes of a terrible conflagration, and I fear that we will never come together as a United States again. Okay, here's the deal. I've been having some serious secession fantasies lately, and I know it's not realistic. <laughs> what? And so does Professor Tim Garrison, the chair of the history department at Portland State University. Well, let me read you from a, a typical textbook that says, uh, the Civil War conclusively settled the question of whether a state can constitutionally secede from the Union. In the words of the Supreme Court, which is a Texas versus White, ours is, a, is an indestructible Union composed of indestructible states. Thanks, Texas. I needed some more reassurance that the country I've always loved isn't descending into pure chaos, so I was honored to speak to the chair of the Democratic Party of Oregon, Gene Atkins. How do we get our democracy back? Well, I think the American people are going to be showing us the way to do that. The grassroots of this country are up in arms. Um, very concerned about the direction of the country, and they are forming themselves into a multitude of groups that are taking to the streets, that are taking to uh, social media, that are meeting in homes every week uh, and in meeting places all around our city and others uh, to have their voices heard. Uh, not only do we have a president who seems not to care about our democratic traditions, but he has Republican collaborators uh, that are in charge in the Senate and the House. Dear Jed, I've taken the Confederate flag out of storage like you told me, but even May May couldn't get all the stains out. This administration, and I think Obama's administration, teased out an enormous amount of racism in this country, and I feel like people voted for Trump based on that. Is there a cure for that, and how do we um, reach those people? Is it possible? It's heartbreaking, and it's also, if I look at it optimistically, it is the fact that, and people use the phrase, being woke. We were founded on our first economics were based on slavery and, and how that's impacted us down, down the line. We do have to be willing to speak up. We do have to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't, you know, disrupt every relationship we have or make us, you know, anathema in our communities because you don't change people always by shaming them. Uh, you know, we need I'm ready to, to be anathema. <laughs> I did feel better after talking to Jean and seeing the bustling office of the DPO. But I still live in a fantasy of a blue state paradise. Once again, Professor Tim. There's an anthropologist named Anthony F.C. Wallace. Um, and he wrote an article back in the 50s that talks about in a, in a time when a society is in tremendous levels of stress, often what he calls a prophet will emerge. And what the prophet does, and, and this is a very complicated theory, but what, what the prophet does is provide a new way uh, for the society to uh, see the present and a new way to go into the future. You mean Steve Bannon? No. <laughs> Dear world, I hope Professor Garrison is right, but in the meantime, I've decided to personally secede from the Union. 
Please address all future correspondence to the state of Ludonia in the country of Erica. Before we end our show, let's hear a short piece from one of the students in our 2017 cohort of the Summer Documentary Program at the Media Institute for Social Change. The students spend the first five days of the program at an intensive orientation on the coast in Gearhart, where they learn interview and storytelling skills, and, most importantly, get to know each other. Here's Atlas Finch on his experience at Documentary Summer Camp. I was nervous. But to be honest, who wouldn't be? I was about to spend five days in a cabin with 12 people I had met two hours earlier. We would be cooking, we would be recording, we would be writing, and worst of all, we would be sharing. I guess going into the camp, the thing I was most afraid of was um, being too busy. I don't know, I kind of just wanted to ease into it. It just seemed like the schedule was kind of jam-packed and I'm just kind of, uh, (laughs) I don't know, that kind of makes me anxious sometimes. As I entered the cavernous basement that would be my bedroom for the next five days, I felt a sense of dread. Would I make friends? Would I have food to eat? Can I even cook? You know, normal stuff to think about for a 19-year-old with a middle schooler's brain. But what I didn't think about was that we would be laughing and shivering and sweating and learning. Usually people don't want more of the same. But this summer, I think I do. That's all for today's nonprofit hour. We'd like to thank our Radio U students Darcy Sharp, Tom Humphrey, Devin Snyder, Mike Selig, Megan Hetty Stahl, Amy Craig, Carly Meisberger, and Lita Husik. We'd also like to thank Atlas Finch from the Summer Documentary Program. Music from this episode includes Barrel Bueno by Chisousen, Sultry Space Showers by Blio, Springlish by Gillicuddy, and Nostalgia of an Ex Gangster Rapper by Deef. This show was made possible with the support of Shout House, a multi-use community arts and event space founded by Hand to Mouth Theater. Centrally located in Portland's Central East Side Industrial District, Shout House features a 1,000 square foot studio with sprung floors, a state-of-the-art sound system, 24-hour access, and other amenities. Available for rehearsals, meetings, workshops, classes, photo shoots, parties, and private events with flexible rates to match your budget. For more information, go to shouthousepdx.com. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change in KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Molly Jean Bennett. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. 
Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to molly at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning into the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. And have a great week.